Welcome to the Careless Talk Climbing Podcast with myself, Aidan Roberts, and my co-host, Sam Pryor. Hello. Um, today, we were joined by um, James Pearson on the podcast. Um, James is a, um, a British climber, uh, most known for his trad climbing, um, and actually played a really influential role to me personally in the early um, years of my sponsorship. Um, I, my first major sponsor was the North Face and he really acted as a mentor in that time and just taught me a lot about how to compose yourself as a professional climber as well. So I've always been really grateful for James's uh, generosity with his time. We don't actually speak about any of that in the podcast, but just a, a little backstory. He's a really nice guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, he also... Uh, many uk um he also found himself at the center of some like controversial grade discussions uh quite early on in his climbing career and it really affected um his uh his future years of climbing and uh i've been really impressed by the way he's managed it but we really delve into um how james's ambition and like pride um associate uh, like relates to his climbing and uh, definitely like a time of turmoil uh, amongst his climbing but uh, i feel like ends as a happy story um so yeah if you're interested in digging into the tale um please do listen um yeah it's, it's a lo- i think that's a lovely story that's, I, th- I think one of my favorites um but also in in regards to james's generosity with this time when i first met james it was trying he was trying the ace when I walked up and he was just trying it when I, when I walked up to, uh, to stand underneath it and he did it that go as I literally just got there. And then he stayed and spotted me on it for about two and a half hours. <laughs> and the weird sort of like, um, I think he said something along those lines. Well, you know, you were here and you spot, spotted me. And I don't, I don't even think I did spot. I literally just arrived. <laughs> I just, you just put, put my pads down. Put your bad down as, it, as his feet swung over your head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's such, such a lovely thing to do. Um, but yeah, if, if you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support us, uh, then we have a Patreon page and our patroons give us all the support this podcast gets. We don't have any adverts. Um, it's all 100% climbing content with no breaks. Uh, so big thanks to them. Uh, if you'd like to join them, we have a couple of tiers. One gives access to a little bit extra content, a lot of sneak peeks into Aiden's climbing um, that might never reach Instagram. Uh, and we have another tier, the slightly higher tier, which has access to a Discord channel as well, uh, where you can join the discussion with all of us. Uh, but yeah, if you enjoy the podcast and you'd like to support it, then please check it out. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if it's if it's not obvious already, James, it's not like the most like well-oiled machine. I mean, it works pretty well. We generally get an episode out each week. And... For a machine with very little oil, it works all right, eh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people, people enjoy it considering. It's amazing how, how many, it's still um, working. How many? So I, I never know. What is it? Is, is it patroons or, or pa- patreons? What's the... Depth? We call them patroons because... Okay. Uh, is that, yeah. and that the, is that the actual official word or is that something that you guys pa- made? Patrons as well? is the original one, but um, okay. we had a thing for a long time where Aiden would pronounce it wrong. Um, okay. I, it, <laughs> I was actually yeah. always as a joke. But. You know, I've, like I've listened to actually, I have listened to quite a lot of your shows and um, and I always ask myself like, 
did I, is that just another word in the English language that I did not know? But no, thank you for <laughs> clarifying that that was a made-up Aiden word. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Patroons. Can you yeah. guys hear that in the background? No. no. Brilliant, no. wonderful. There's just children shouting, Papa, Papa, where are you? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm literally hidden in a bedroom with the door barricaded. Like a, sh- a sheet hanging up to a, a duvet, actually. Hold on, let me show you. To try and block some of the sound. To be honest, you've done pretty well there. Yeah, you sound good. That's, I know. I'm a, yeah, yeah, I'm a professional at this. I'm like, I must be on my second podcast now. <laughs> yeah, that, that's some serious rigging as well. You can tell uh, you're uh, used to working no, I, with ropes. <laughs> I, I like. I mean, there's actually no ropes. It's just wedged in the door. So it's you know even better, even like ah. level, level above. <laughs> so, so you back? Your trader, your trader, finesse. You're, you're in France, right? Yeah. So right. um, we've actually got two houses in in France. Well, when I say that, it sounds really grand. Um, we have the house that I'm currently in right now, which is sort of our original house out here that we bought in 2013 and we've done quite a lot of work on it and now it's it's really nice um and then a couple of years ago we decided that we didn't want to live here anymore or not permanently here because it gets very 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 hot in summer it's absolutely amazing in winter there's fantastic limestone all around us and an amazing bouldering crag sandstone bouldering crag um Oh, this is the house awesome. I've visited. Yeah, you've been here, Aiden. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, it's a lovely, a lovely place. Yeah, I think it's it, cool, isn't it? Very homely. I'm trying to recall exactly what time of year it was, but it was over the winter spell. I feel, yeah, it would have been in, I think, I think February time or something like that, March time maybe. Yeah. So we went yeah. to La Capelle one day, and then we went to Roussan one day, I think. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, pretty, it was pretty, pretty cool with Jim as well. Yeah, I remember it well. The days of the North Face rookies. The rookie team, yeah. yeah, yeah. In their infinite wisdom, they dropped you and, and Jim and, and Julia. Like, just anyway, let's not go down that rabbit hole. Um, anyway, yeah, so we've got um, so our, our new place is in Briançon, um, which is basically like the southern French Alps. It's the sunny side of the, of the French Alps, so it's pretty cool. It gets, I think, 300 days of sunshine a, a year, but it's a, a 1,000 metres um so it's relatively cool in summer and there's loads of different rock types loads of different climbing all all around it's it's kind of yeah it's pretty amazing for if if you're a climber that likes doing other things it's i I don't think there's many other better places to live oh wow that's a nice balance as well you've got like a kind of um a really nice winter spot and a really nice well we were thinking originally we were thinking about trying to keep both of them and then putting up the house either house on airbnb during the off season um it kind of worked really well the first season and then the last year we did it it didn't work so well so i'm not sure if people don't want to come here in the summer because it's getting so uncomfortably hot or um or if it was just you know a bad a bad year but i think eventually we'll probably move up to brionson which you know whenever i'm up there i love the place and i'm kind of you know don't really think about life down here and then whenever i come back here i'll kind of fall in love with this place again and it is really, really cool in the winter, but mm. summer is just too, too much. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Hey, okay. you can always find something to complain about. I mean, if it was in the UK, just be pissing it down all the time. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Snowstorms had a. I mean, yeah, snowed is in that, this is weekend. That what, it, what it's doing right now? Okay, cool. Yeah, it's Central Lakes. Anyway, it's. Um, uh, I kind of. Um, yeah, haven't had loads of snow in many, many years, but had like a serious dump. Um, I wonder if people get out snowballing if there'll be enough for that 
that's one one thing that I've never really had the chance to do. I've always been away in in sort of the depths of winter, or at least coinciding with those like three three days of snow per year. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's pretty rare that we get enough snow to do that, isn't it? But it's, yeah. it is very cool. It does, yeah. it does look super cool. Uh, but where where were you originally from when you were um, living in the UK? From Matlock. Yeah, Matt- from Matlock. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. So I grew up in Matlock. My folks are from, from there. Um, lived in the same house pretty much, well, my entire uh, adult life. Well, child life into young adult life. And then when I was about 20 two or something like that when 21 22 i moved to manchester for a couple of years which was just grim um and then (laughs) and then i went to and then i went to innsbruck and then i eventually found myself in the south of france when i when i met caroline right and so you've recently to give a little bit of context you've recently done a talk at kendall and we're going to kind of vaguely use some of that stuff that you spoke about as a kind of very vague framework for this chat um so if we if we do it a little bit sequentially, um, that's a good uh, idea because I have a habit of just kind of just oh, going off on my own on my own track. We'll yeah, we'll yeah. definitely lose the sequential line, but if we this start, is a, right place. we start with good intentions. <laughs> <laughs> it's about as structured as podcast I'll get. But... <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll try and start in the right place and then we'll let it go. But um, I was I was shocked to see that you started climbing quite late, especially yeah, like was, Matlock. Um, I'm surprised it took you so long to find it. So, like, I mean, the, the truth is, is that climbing was always somehow a part of my life, um, but I just didn't really know it because as a as a little kid, my parents didn't climb. Um, we didn't really have any close friends or family that climbed, but we were, our family was quite into hiking. And so almost every weekend and every holiday, we'd be out, you know, doing stuff, be it in the Peak District or or further afield. And so especially in the Peak, I saw climbers from a really early age and I was immediately drawn to them and drawn to that that world. Um, I used to, you know, go and climb on the little boulders up sort of below Stanage or Burbage whenever we were walking there, and I could see real climbers <laughs> climbing up there with their their ropes and harnesses and hexes. <laughs> and I remember just thinking, "Wow, that looks amazing! I'd, I'd really, I'd really like to do that." But back then, it was kind of hard to get into it. You know, it was very much sort of a trad mentality that led the way in the UK. It was just, I think, just in the beginning of kind of youth climbing clubs. Um, I think there was one in Sheffield, maybe, at the Foundry. Um, And I think we tried to go there one time to sign up, but it was a bit complicated for some reason. It was a bit far for my parents to drive anyway. And um, my dad was super into rugby, and I guess secretly he just hoped that I would really get into rugby as well. And so I kind of like I, I dabbled with it every now and again. I remember like I got a I got a harness and a rope for Christmas one time. Um because before that we'd been abseiling because that you know was also seemed to me to be pretty much what climbing was um at Black Rocks, but with like a blue polypropylene builder's rope that my dad had found in the garage. And I think I don't know whether oh, it was wow. my mom or him decided it was probably a bit too sketch. So they got me a real rope for Christmas and a real harness. Dad still didn't have a harness, but he just sort of held onto the rope and lowered me off things. <laughs> and that was was pretty fun until until I kind of forgot all about it, ended up going down the rabbit hole of various other different sports. Um, and then when I was about 15 or 16, I made some new friends at secondary school. And it just so happened that they climbed and their dad was quite a big climber. 
and um and they just mentioned no we're going climbing tonight do you want to come and i was like wow that sounds cool i always you know always wanted to try that and literally was the i think i I bought a pair of shoes the next day and from that day onwards i was just obsessed completely obsessed it just really felt like i finally fell into what i was always meant to do because i'd been trying all these different sports i'd always get pretty good relatively quickly like i think i'm quite adaptable and able to learn new skills up until this certain point where it just got a bit hard and i just kind of ended up giving up and moving on to something else and I can always remember as a as a kid, I always wanted to be like pretty pretty good at things. Um, I can remember having this obsession almost about being sponsored, even though I don't think I really knew what sponsor was. This is at the time when I was inline skating. You know, I go to the skate parks and I'd see the the older older kids, and you know, you'd hear people talking about being sponsored and getting pictures in magazines. And I remember asking all my dad's like work friends, "Oh, do you want to sponsor me? I'm really good at skating." without any clue of what it what it meant just i don't know it always seemed like it meant that you were somebody or, or something and um it's like i don't know if it's almost somehow a status linked... thing yeah yeah i don't know if it's somehow linked to my dad my dad always played rugby um and he was really 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 good but he never he never made it as a pro he was always sort of you know very like highly skilled amateur so i don't know if there's something there or something you know something completely um unrelated but anyway when i when i did Finally, get the chance to go climbing. That was it. It was just the one, the one thing, and I've been obsessed ever since. <laughs> and oh, wow. you um, progressed really quickly in the, like you, like you say, you did kind of in other sports. Yeah, um, and then just two years later, you climbed eight B, B thirteen. Um, yeah. So one, one sixteen eight. Yeah, probably. I think I think I, on my first trip to the states, I climbed the Buttermilker, which was given eight B at the time, and then it, now I think it's settled at eight A plus. But yeah, it was. I mean, it was a really hard boulder problem for me, uh, regardlessly. And it, I think at the time it was supposed to have been maybe the youngest ascent of an eight B boulder problem for a Brit. Anyway, hmm. I kind of yeah, I remember the, the first day going climbing with this friend from from school. Um, it was him, his his younger brother, who was more into it than he was, and his dad. And on the first day, I remember being better than my friend and his brother and starting to think, oh, you know, this that's kind of funny. And then the second day I went out climbing with him, I was better than than the dad. And um, and I remember looking, he, he think we, we top rope like a HVS or an E1 or something that day. And I watched this other guy climbing an E4 next to us. And I remember thinking over and saying to my friend, God, can you imagine if you could ever climb E4? God, what would that be like? And then about, I don't know, about maybe a month later, I think I already was. <laughs> and um, and it just it just progressed so quickly. And it really did feel like, I think all those other sports really helped me to, to understand how my body moved in like a three-dimensional space. And that was really important on the gritstone. And I was very, very small at the time. I think I was about one meter 50. What's that in, um, in feet and inches? Pretty small. still at like 16 or 17 um and very very weak basically i was a really late bloomer and um and so the only things i could climb back then were really techie slabs and on the gritstone that was perfect for me because i got to develop my technique to a fairly high level fairly quickly and then as soon as i put on a bit of muscle and grew a little bit around sort of 17 to 18 suddenly everything just felt really really easy i can remember it was like um just this 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 really crazy transition from being fairly okay, but still basically a little boy to sort of starting to, to grow some, some 
real muscles and like transition towards having more of a man's body and suddenly everything was like wow this is cool yeah and then i've lost all that all that technique since then because (laughs) (laughs) i feel it's quite classic that phenomenon isn't it people like kind of like almost relish that transition and like kind of just like like have so much emphasis on then the physical side when they're like oh suddenly i can just be really strong and then (laughs) you leave all your your uh, technical climbing by the wayside I'm really glad that I did have that moment where I was small and and weak um, because I think I learned a lot. And it also, it makes me really aware like how body, body size and, um, you know, strengths and weaknesses can, can change things. Um, But I would have loved to have been able to keep that, that technical ability. There's some slabs on grit that I've been, I've been recently and I've tried them and I can't move in them. Some slabs and first ascents I did when I was, I think 17 with my parents spotting Uh. me. Yeah. It's, it's really funny. <laughs> oh, that's quite amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's sometimes hard to lose reference of those things as well. Completely, yeah. yeah. Go and, back. And you um, you said you got quite a lot of recognition quite quickly from the sort of climbing media of the time. What did that look like? Um, so, so I think when I climbed maybe my first E9, which was the zone, um, and then I did a route called Knocking on Heaven's Door, which was like quite a solid E9. Uh, that would have been around about my 18th birthday. And at that time, I was definitely the youngest person to have really climbed those sorts of grades, I think. And um, and it wasn't much at the time, but for me, it was everything. You know, suddenly you started, I got like three pairs of boots from, from I think, 510 was my first boot sponsor. You were sponsored. Uh, well, could, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so like, I, I kind of, I'd arrived, you know, I'd got to where I wanted to be in, in life. And then I started to understand what it meant that being sponsored didn't really change your life that much because a pair of boots doesn't definitely doesn't pay the mortgage. I mean, that came a little bit later at that time. I was still living with my parents and it was just all, you know, everything was, everything was great. Um, and then what I, what I think is quite interesting maybe to point out is it was a very, very, or at least it felt like a very different time to today. You know, there was no, there was no social media at the time. And I think that was probably one of the biggest differences. And um, whilst, whilst I think we definitely have echo chambers now in, in 2023, you know, where you and your close group of peers, maybe just continually reinforce the same ideas. Back then it was really, really hard to sort of see the other side of the coin. Like for, for me, I was just out there doing all these, all these routes Um constantly sort of surrounded by either my my family or a close group of friends that I was climbing with um who were all just you know whether they believed it or not we just been really really kind they were telling me that I was great at climbing I was friends with magazine editors which meant I got a lot of coverage in the magazines which was kind of the only real media that existed at the time um and I just remember feeling like I was some kind of I don't know like a little climbing superstar, God's gift to climbing. Uh, you know, it was, and there was no, or at least that I heard, there was no negativity towards it, nothing to balance out that. And so you can imagine for an 18 year old guy who's been kind of searching for his place in the sporting world all all his life, it was, yeah, I mean, it was a recipe for for disaster, which, which it's came so, out. It's so understandable, isn't it? Um, were you, did you climb with people who were, as good as you ever or you always the best in your group no 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 i definitely climbed with people that were as good as me and, and even better i climbed quite a bit with uh with ryan pasquill when you know he was really 
really going super well. I mean, he kind of always is, but back then he was someone that I really always, I was always chasing and always trying to follow him. I remember the the, the first trip to the States I ever made was with Rye and with um, a group of the guys from, from around Sheffield. And, um, and Rye was kind of on that trip was my hero. Like he was the one that would always do the boulder problems first. Um, he did a lot of stuff that I couldn't, I couldn't do. And I was just kind of trying my best to keep up with him. Um, but sort of where, I guess where I maybe made my mark um, and maybe went a little bit beyond what other people were doing at the time was, was in head pointing. I completely embraced head pointing and it was, and still is to this day, you know, somewhat of a, there's different, definitely different viewpoints uh, on the way that people regard head pointing. Some people think that it's amazing and you can really get the best out of yourself and you're climbing. And other people think of it almost like cheating, you know, that you're really bringing these routes down to, to your level. And, um, and what I wanted to do was to climb as hard a trad routes as I could, because that's, I think what I realized I was best at at a pretty early age. And the way for me to do that was just to head point these things. I've never really been that much into on sighting and and that's something that's kind of stuck with me to this to this day um but headpoint is something that i really loved and after a lot of reflection in recent years i think i understand better why now why i really love it it's like the whole process behind it um obviously on sighting is incredible and it brings you all these these really intense emotions that headpointing might never give you but on the other hand headpointing allows you to go in complete geek mode into into a climb and really almost in the same way that you you approach a really hard boulder problem but then with the added element of having to deal with the sort of the danger the psychological element um as well and i really love that and i don't think at the time any really other young climbers were doing it i know rye and pete they were a lot more into sort of on on sighting they were definitely had more of a traditional climbing background you know they're both their their dads had been climbers they'd grown up with climbing and that's kind of what they just did they went out and they on-sided really hard routes i was really into head pointing i think that's that's why i could do these like fairly sort of headline grabbing ascents at a relatively early age it wasn't necessarily that i was i was better than the other young trad climbers out there i was just yeah, I was I was cheating my way up these things, <laughs> but but that is funny. Like, were there many other people that were head pointing at this time, or was it that that was something that you were kind so of when putting I, more energy into? I guess I guess the first route that got me um, national, maybe even international recognition, was when I climbed Equilibrium, and that was in two thousand and two thousand and nineteen, maybe. Uh, no, no, no. God, what am I God, talking about? I was, I was 19. Yeah. I was 19. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was in 2005. Um, and and I basically, I'd come back from the States. I'd bouldered better than ever. I felt like I was in a really decent shape, but I'd also been bouldering quite sort of consistently for the last year or so. I hadn't really done that many hard, hard grit routes. And for me at that time, hard grit was almost like the currency that I paid my sponsorship deals with. That's kind of how I felt like it. And I, so I really like bouldering. I really love trad as well, but it scared me a lot of the time, at least the way my relationship that I had with trad climbing at the time. Um, and so I didn't do too much of it. And uh, after that trip in the States, I was like, Oh, I could do with doing another trad route now. And I feel like in really good shape. So what should I go and try? And equilibrium was the hardest trad route in the world at the time. And, um, 
and I basically yeah just decided to to go for that one and I did it re- relatively quickly so it was after the the hard grip um boom which was in the sort of the late 90s leading up to like 97 98 um and then I guess then there were a lot of people really doing hard grit and slowly they started to move on to other things, but there were still people like Gresham was still doing quite a lot of hard, hard grit. He'd done the the second ascent of equilibrium. Um, so there's still definitely other people out, out there, but it wasn't as big of a deal than it was in sort of the late nineties. And I think that also really worked well for me because I, I came into it in a time when not only was I one of the youngest people doing that style of climbing, there just weren't that many other people doing it, but a lot of people were still kind of emotionally connected to it. Like I think mm. a lot of people were probably sad that hard grit kind of drifted away. And, you know, you never know why these trends come and go in, in climbing. And there were probably a lot of people that wanted it to stay longer than it did. And maybe the fact that I was suddenly pushing it again, I don't know, made made it somehow you know yeah captivating for people anyway yeah yeah and so um and so the, uh, there were there were definitely a couple of us doing it but not not as many as before mm. yeah yeah i want i just wanted to i mean i think it's probably quite a big subject but i think you made quite an in- interesting distinction there between like uh that trad scared you but not necessarily like uh the physical like not necessarily the physicalities of actually trad climbing, but your relationship with trad climbing. Um, could you explain that a little bit more? Because I think I kind of understand what you're yeah, getting yeah. there. <laughs> it's quite so, an interesting psychological uh, distinction. Um, so I think what it what it kind of comes down to is that growing. I feel like in in whatever you do in life, whatever you're going to learn through your sort of younger years especially like your early teenage years really tends to stick with you through through the rest of your life and so for me that was that was climbing um but in a very very specific way and that was basically climbing on the grit stone so very very technical balancey um friction dependent but rarely very very physical and so even though through bouldering i definitely developed my strengths um and and trad on on the grit and bouldering on the grit helped me develop my technique as well. I was never, I think probably for the first three or four years of my climbing life, I don't think I ever went sport climbing. And since those really early days, sport climbing, even right up until until now, is still what I consider to be my, my biggest weakness. Um, I used to think that my body, like physiologically, didn't process lactic acid in in the same way that other people did. Now I realize that's that's a load of rubbish. But what it is is that I just never quite learned to to climb particularly efficient efficiently. Like with me, it's kind of almost, you know, it's 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 a hundred percent or nothing. It's maybe not quite as bad as that. But when I when I watch how Caroline climbs now and I watch myself in the same route, knowing how different our bouldering levels are. It's really always quite embarrassing for me just how badly I actually do do climb when getting pumped is a, is sort of an active element of that. And so for those first few years of of my my climbing life and especially my trad climbing life, the only kind of routes that I could really do were definitely towards the boulder end of the of the E grade scale. Um 
And just for you know, for, for maybe the listeners out there that maybe don't have a a really um, a good grasp of what the E grades mean and represent. Basically, there's this misconception that the higher an E grade becomes, the the more dangerous the route becomes, and that's not at all the case. At any given E grade, you can have routes that are completely safe, and also routes that you're going to die if if you fall off. And that's as true at E1 as it is at E10 or even higher. Um, all you need is that the physical difficulty of the route needs to be high enough to allow the route to be safer. And it's this sort of sliding spectrum. It's 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 probably easy for me to talk about it and hard for you guys to visualize. But basically, any given grade, let's take E7 as an example, um, you could have a route that would be somewhere around French 8A, and it would be absolutely perfectly safe. Basically, it's a sport route. In fact, a lot of this old... Um, 8As in the UK were originally graded E7. So take an 8A route, you know, stick some bolts in or, you know, a perfect splitter crack and it's going to be around about E7. And then as you start to get bolder through that spectrum, the difficulty grade is going to is going to decrease and then the so basically the easiest you could probably have an E7 is around 7A. So there's quite a big difference between 7A and 8A as a, as a sport route, but they could all be given an E7, and it just depends on how bold they are. And in fact, that relationship between danger and or, or likelihood of injury and physical or technical difficulty. And so what I really specialized in back then um, is is the bolder end of the spectrum basically climbing the easiest kind of routes that you could find with the very worst consequences <laughs> because I wasn't physically capable of climbing anything else. And I wanted to, to achieve those really big numbers. Um, because like, like I said, for, for me, climbing these trad routes was sort of a way to, to justify my position as a professional climber. Um, it was the thing that I was best at. And the only way for me really to progress and to do harder and harder routes was to, to take more and more risk. And at some point, I'm not sure exactly when I realized that, but I did realize that this road I was walking was only going to end one way. And um, and it wasn't particularly inspiring to think about the, the, the ultimate consequence of that. Just reflecting on what you said then, it's really interesting associating our pride with the grades we climb is like a really common phenomenon in sport climbing and bouldering alike but the difference with trad climbing seems that almost that the way it's graded encourages you to risk your life a lot more right if you're like looking to improve your grade like then the easiest way in many ways or the most like time efficient way is to just take more and more risks like always you know, it, it depends on where you've come from and where your experience is is based um for me growing up and climbing on the gritstone i'd 100 agree with you that it was easier for me to increase my my overall trad grade um to, to to tick these higher and higher grades by taking more risks than it was to actually knuckle down and get stuck into a training program and, and build you know the the things that i so sorely needed to to, to build but what i've seen more recently after having moved away from the uk and and now living out in europe where everyone's pretty much a sport climber to begin with and might eventually transition towards trad is that those guys have a completely different relationship to it and it's much easier for those guys to train a little bit harder and increase their physical level than it is to take more risks there's 
you know there are there are climbers out here in in Europe that can probably you know quite easily climb safe 8c on trad but you put them on that scary uh 7a that really dangerous 7a which is way 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 below so safe 8c would be somewhere around e9 or or, or e10 um so you put them on a, on an e7 which should in theory be way below their comfort zone but because it's something that they've never done it just completely throws a spanner in the works and they're not able to 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 function at all they just wouldn't they won't even take the risk they don't understand that so what i try and do nowadays um and this has definitely helped the fact that i, I moved away from the uk and moved away from one type of of climbing community that kind of has one vision of the way that the climbing world works is i try to just stay really open to all different sorts of ideas and interpretations and generally like that you you sort of you seem to be a little bit less easily easily shocked or surprised at the different ways people can relate with our sports it is it is a potentially concerning thing though isn't it that with trad particularly as aiden was just saying it does open the door for some people and and you were there you were one of those kids and particularly i always try and give extra sort of slack for people below the age of like 21 you know because people of that age are going to do some silly things because they're they're still really young and like yeah. i think one of the problems does happen when people treat people in that age bracket as though they're adults and they're making all sensible decisions and they yeah, forget yeah. they forget that when we were all that age we all did embarrassing stuff as well um or said you know the wrong thing from time to time but it is a concerning uh, thing set up where those some people in that bracket where they might be desperate to kind of prove themselves have a situation where they could okay maybe you're not as strong as you need to be to, to climb the grades to get you well known or to get you on, on social media but if you risk your life then then you can and that's a bit worrying isn't it it really kind of it might push a few people a little bit more towards that side of things than maybe they should do organically or naturally yeah i 100 percent agree with that um i think realistically and speaking honestly about this i'm i'm, I'm lucky that i'm still here because i did some really daft things when i was 18 or, or 19 um mm-hmm. and at that point I'm not I'm not sure if it's that there's just a lot less going on in your life or you're oblivious to the consequences or you just don't really care but I've definitely made a lot of decisions regarding climbing very very dangerous routes that I would never never make uh today and one of the things that scares me the most actually is if Caroline and and I actually we, we often talk about like which if our kids become climbers which direction would we be most worried about them taking because both the competition world that obviously caroline was completely immersed in um and the trad climbing world come with really serious risks um very very different risks but you know i guess equally as important and if arthur decided that he wanted to go and do some some hard grit and some you know some sketchy trad head points at like 17 18 years old as a dad now i'm i'd like to think that i could trust in him to make the the right decision and you know give him the 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 leeway that my parents gave me to find his own feet but i'm not sure if i'd be able to 
because I think the mm. difference between me and and, uh, and my parents is that my parents were somewhat ignorant to to the what I was doing out there. You know, I, I specifically didn't tell them about about my climbs and and the risks I was taking because I didn't want them to have to deal with that. So knowing deeply what it what it means, I'm not sure I'd be able to let go so easily and just let them get on with it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And yeah. um and it's it's a very complicated world these days with regards to building your career as a as a professional climber. And I'll, honestly, if I was if I was born 15 years later, I'm not sure that I would have made it as a pro climber. I think I, I was really, really lucky to have kind of found my little niche at a moment where people were still interested in that. Um, I'm not sure that would have happened today. But with the way that social media is and, and the fact that it is so much easier to self-publicize, I can definitely see how it could. If people suddenly thought that climbing dangerous trad routes was a way to, for them to, to gain uh, notoriety or to you know to increase their their status in the climbing community i think there'd be quite a lot of people prepared to do that and that's yeah it's a bit scary mm. we don't see many examples of people pushing that too far as well like it's quite um like you say you've probably been quite fortunate to be with us on this podcast today but in generally just here and <laughs> here in general um without like the serious injury but like uh we don't see many examples of people pushing that. And part of that, I think you might be like the direction in which media focus is. It might be like less focused on a lot of trad climbing in certain, um, certain circles. I mean, it's a tenuous link and I just bring it up because, um, you've changed a lot as a climber since that time. But, uh, cause I, th- I know you've worked with Ollie as he's often mentioned the attitude, the thing you mentioned earlier about you felt that your body maybe managed lact- lactic acid differently to most people. And it was something physiological that was just like a, a ceiling. Um, and then realizing actually, actually with hard work and training, you could break through that glass ceiling. And it was just a case of like, uh, putting in the work. Cause you were saying with, when you were doing other sports, you'd be like, quite talented at these sports and like initially you'd make a lot of improvements and i think the way you um described it was but you'd kind of stop when it got a bit hard kind of thing um and i kind of wonder if you translate that attitude to trad climbing uh almost it's more laborious the like the section of getting physically stronger getting really root fit with that attitude applying it to trad climbing the more obvious thing is to take more risks and I wonder if that was something you felt maybe applied to you, where it doesn't necessarily apply to other people so much as well. I think I've, I think I've definitely always been one to try and find the easiest way to do things. Um, you know, I can I can remember back when I was at school, you know, doing my GCSEs or my A levels. Um, I I sort of always try and figure out how I needed to do the least work possible just to make it through. It's an amazing skill, rel- that, actually. Yeah. It gets you a really long way. I was relatively <laughs> lucky that I was sort of smart enough to to get through my GCSEs without too much work. Um, and then I thought I could do the same with my A-levels, and I think that it just tipped me a little bit over the edge, and so my A-levels were definitely not not so great. It might also coincide that I kind of really found climbing at the same time. So I think in my last year of A-levels, I was I was going to school for like – 13 lessons a week or something and the rest of the time i was <laughs> i was out climbing 
but I definitely know I've always been quite analytical and always trying to figure out the most efficient way for me to do something by having to put in the less least effort. And I really, I didn't, I'm, I'm not going to say I don't, this is like what growth mindset as Hazel would say, like I didn't used to like putting in hard work to do something. Um, I don't know where that comes from, but if you compare like my work ethic to that of Caroline, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, you can see that in the way that way that we climb when we go on these long endurance routes, or even when we go on, you know, something like, like off width crack climbing, which neither of us are particularly good at. I should arguably be more skilled than her because of all of my trad background and I'm technically better at jamming, but she just does not give up. Like she never gives up. And that's from years and years and years of competing really hard. Basically, Caroline always tells me in a training session, she's like, what do you want to do today? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Let's go and do a, a board session. And she's like, what don't you want to do? And I'm like, oh, you know, I really don't want to do this long endurance session. It's like, well, that's what we're doing because you need to do, if you want to improve, you need to do the stuff that you you don't like, that you hate, that makes you feel sick because that's what you need. And um, and so maybe, maybe subconsciously in all of that was the fact that, you know, I knew that climbing bold trad routes was going to be my easy way to these big numbers and it was going to get me what i'd always been searching for um who knows but that's that's what i did and that's the road i was walking and then that basically led me up to well led me up to some first ascents on on the grit and then and then the walk of life and then everything that happened after that so i don't know if you guys want to talk about any any of that or oh definitely definitely yeah i think yeah. that would be i think that would be um i think that'd be great because i feel like that was quite an influential thing in your or transitional phase in your climbing right yeah very much so so basically what i mean what's brought all that back into focus right now for me is is this route bon voyage that i recently climbed at Anot in the south of france um and for quite a few years i thought that i'd left all of the things that happened and surrounded the walk of life behind me, uh, you know, after climbing Rhapsody, I think that was in 2014. Um, you know, I, I felt like I'd, I'd kind of proved everything that I needed to prove to people. And I was free again, just to get on with my own life and, and do what, what really inspired me in climbing. And that was true to a certain extent, but what Bon Voyage showed me recently is that actually what I've been doing is just hiding from a lot of the really uncomfortable um, parts of my past life that I still hadn't really properly confronted and properly come to terms with. And so and Bon Voyage, it was the longest the longest project that, I, that, I've, that I've done and I've tried. Um, and eventually I climbed it and I was really, really happy with that. And it felt like a really big step in my climbing, something super important to me. And the only thing people wanted to talk about was the grade of it. And it was a subject that I deeply wanted to avoid. Oh, that'll, that'll, was, really, that'll really resonate with Aiden. Yeah. We've partly, often spoken partly about because it. of, you know, everything that's, that's happened to me in, in the past, but especially to do with the walk of life. Because, well, for, for, for listeners out there that maybe don't know my story, the Walk of Life is a first ascent that I made in 2008, I think. Yeah, I think late on in, in 2008. And um, it yeah, was the first route that I gave this grade to and the first route in the world that was ever proposed the grade of, of E12, which was a 
phenomenally astronomically big grade for truck climbing at the at the time um and now in in talk through like how you found that route and and like your journey to actually climbing it yeah yeah i'll I'll try and keep Uh, it short because i'm i'm really (laughs) i'm looking at the clock already (laughs) no there's actually some context as well because you climb rhapsody before then which i think gives some context to your decisions um yeah but didn't you climbed yeah 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 before but like uh uh just to wait yeah, just to, for the timeline, for because I the kind timeline of... was yeah. So the timeline was um, I, I grew up climbing on the Gritstone. I realised that was pretty good at doing those those sort of very short, very technical, potentially very dangerous routes um, that you find in, in the Peak District or, or in, in Yorkshire. Um, I I started to put up some of my own first ascents. So after climbing Equilibrium, which was the the only E10 or um, sort of accepted E10 in, in the world at that, at that time. I started to put up a few of my own first ascents that I thought was as hard or, or harder than Equilibrium, like the Promise, uh, the Groove at Crackcliffe, which was one of the more famous last great problems on Gritstone. Um, and um, I was looking for my next really big project. And at that time, my, my girlfriend at the time, she, she came from um, down in, in, in the south, close close to Exeter. And so I was spending a bit of time down there. And I remember one time just randomly ending up at this place called Dyer's Lookout, which is on the North Devon coast. And I'd, I'd looked through the topo and I'd seen this E9 route called um, Dyer Straits. I think the original one was called the route from Ian Vickers, which was basically this, this pegged up crack line, up the, the upper part of this amazing wall. And I got there and the pegs were all completely rotten. And, um, so I thought about just replacing those pegs and trying to climb this original line because it looked like a really fun thing to do. And then I started to think, oh, what if, you know, what if I take all the pegs out and try and climb it on trad and like as an ethical statement about not placing pegs on sea cliffs. Um, and then well, if I'm going to all that effort, like maybe I should look and try and do this direct start and kind of climb this monster 50 meter long pitch up this crazy, crazy slab. And anyway, I got really stuck into that without ever thinking that, Hmm, this doesn't look very much like the gritstone. But at, at the time, you know, I'd, I'd never really climbed anywhere else. I just assumed that climbing was climbing. You know, whatever I'd learned on the grit would would apply to everything else. And anyway, so I, I climbed the walk walk of life. Um, after a lot of a lot of effort, it was my longest project by a long, long, long way at the time, and it was just a real harrowing experience for me because. Um, Long story short is that what I developed climbing on the grit was this kind of system to deal with that mental stress of climbing these really, really dangerous routes, um, but only for a very short-lived amount of time. And so by the sort of the end of my, let's say, first part of my grit career, I was actually leading routes that hadn't really ever been able to top rope cleanly just because I knew that when I got on the sharp end, I was so much more focused. I even, I, I felt physically stronger. I could do moves that I couldn't really do on a top rope. Um, it was like this perfect sort of bubble of peace and tranquility that I found myself in for the you know two or three minutes that it took to climb these things where I just felt like Superman, like I couldn't fall off them. But 
And am I right? So when you were just saying that, is that like you begin to put faith in that and actually go for things which you hadn't Completely, talked about? Completely, 100%. I absolutely wow. relied on that on that feeling, which is terrifying to think, to talk about it objectively now. Yeah, It's absolutely yeah. terrifying. But <laughs> that's that's kind of where I was. Like that kind of shows how confident I was in myself, but also how incapable of looking at the at the bigger picture and seeing things for what they really are. Like I was just so, so into myself at the time. And I, I'd really, I remember almost feeling like I was somehow a little bit magic back then that I couldn't do anything wrong because I just, I'd climbed like last great problem after last great problem, you know, project after project. I was just going from strength to strength to strength. I hadn't, I'd never failed on a single, a single thing I'd tried. And, um, and plus I had this like superhero secret that I, I could tap into whenever, you know, whenever I need to. I thought yeah. it was amazing. You take the top rope away and you suddenly it was, back. <laughs> it was terrifying because literally I hadn't done a lot of, I hadn't linked a lot of these things. I would, I mean, the day that I did the the groove, I, I, I fell off it, like just constantly all that morning, all that morning, all that morning. And then I was like, well, all right, let's just get on the lead. I'm sure I'll do it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so, That's- so I got, I found myself on on the walk of life, um, you know, reliant on this on this thing. And whilst the first ten meters or so of the walk of life are are really bold and and felt a bit like a grit route, once I got past those those ten meters and that crucial like two or three minutes of climbing time, suddenly that bubble burst, and I just found myself absolutely terrified, you fearing for my life whilst I tried to scrape my way up that giant wall that I was completely physically underprepared for. Like I'd never really, I don't think I'd ever really been pumped before in my life. And I was just on this thing boxed out of my mind thinking that, you know, every single minute, every single second I was going to fall off and die. God. So I, so it was, yeah, it was pretty. When I, when I, when I say to people now that the walk of life was, you know the hardest thing that I'd ever done at the time. It's it it's it's the truth, like it's the genuine truth. But what what changed in the years after that is that through a lot of pain and suffering of you know the, the fallout of of the walk of life and the downgrade and and me leaving the UK was that I eventually realised that my truth, my vision of the way that I see things and and the world on my own climbing can only ever apply to me and you know regardless of how something might feel to me it all depends on what context it's it's viewed um from uh upon and basically the walk of life felt desperate to me but i was just totally underprepared for it but mm. something can feel really really hard even if objectively it isn't that hard or at least for for everybody for an average climber you can have a, a really intense experience on something that is actually fairly mediocre if you're just not suited to it. Interesting mindset. Obviously, that kind of attitude applies to all climbers contending with any grading anything, right? Your best judgment is in relation to your own ability. And you kind of like try and bring other people into the picture. But if you haven't climbed with other people on a route or like it's much harder. To, it's where it's like much easier oh, to. Yeah, 100%. 
to do that in like bouldering in like examples where you can have other people try the things and like kind of have yeah. a few more data points but and a lot a lot of the time and maybe this is a this is something that's changing a little bit i think in in the last couple of years like a lot of the time especially with trad routes these really hard trad routes they're very few and far between it's not like a hard sport route or a, or a hard boulder where there's you know there's there's thousands of things out there to go and try like if nowadays if you want to go and try a an 8C boulder there's there's so many of them and if you want to go and try like a 9A plus route there's so many to go and try hard trad routes are really still special because it's that curious relationship between gear and and holds you know you you want the holds to be just enough there so that you find it really really difficult but when it gets to that level of difficulty for yourself you know you're not going to be able to climb this thing first try so there needs to be enough gear in there to make it justifiable to fall off multiple times and obviously usually when you add good gear to something it makes for generally for bigger holds which then decreases the difficulty and it's kind of catch-22 situation so finding that balance of a really hard line that actually works from top to bottom and is protectable is is super difficult and so a lot of time i think track climbers tend to keep these things to themselves um and even with bon voyage i was really like that i didn't want anybody else to come along and 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 steal it from me because i've been looking for so long for something like this but the major downside of that is that you don't get to share the experience with anybody else and so you know after that route i i'd done it i was still completely clueless about the grade i just wanted to um go back to the walk of life thing a little bit because am i right in saying that you gave that e12 at the time yeah. and was that was there an e11 at the time yeah so at the, at the time um, so this was 2008. Rhapsody um, was the only E11, the first route to be curated E11 in the world, and the the only E11 at that time. Um, I think Dave made the first ascent of that around 2005 or 2006. And um, yeah, I'd been I'd been to try Rhapsody actually whilst I was working on the Walk of Life because I figured that I should go and at least compare it to something else that. The walk of life, just from my top rope sessions, I started to wonder if it wasn't going to be like a big step up for me and the amount of time that it was taking me. Um, so I'd been to look at Rhapsody and yeah, I mean, it's, this is this is kind of embarrassing to to talk about, but I went up, up there just for a day visit with Steve McClaw and, and John Dunn and um, we put up a top rope on, on the route. Uh, I got on it. I think I top roped it straight away in no i went up the crack which is about 7c plus or something then there's a rest at the top of the crack um and then the upper part of rhapsody where all the crooks of the route is i i'd been watching videos of it um i I knew all the moves by heart because i was really interested to try and climb it as quick as possible i flashed it in in two two halves so the upper the upper section which sounds really impressive but you got to think at the time, my bouldering level was so, so, so far above my sport climbing level. Um, I think I'd bouldered, I think I might have even flashed 8B at the time, and my hardest sport route was 8B+. And I think I'd done one of them at Raven Tour, very short. So like my <laughs> oh, endurance wow. was so, so, so low in comparison to my power that for me, you know, flashing, the moves on Rhapsody weren't particularly hard, but I just knew deep down that I didn't have the endurance to link all that together, you know, probably even even the head wall i'm not sure i could have linked it let alone adding in that 70 plus at the start and then having to to rest in what is a really good rest for me is just 
I would I would have been slowly dying in that in that rest. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I, I think on honestly, I knew that I couldn't climb the route. But instead, in my infinite wisdom back then, instead of just putting my hands up and being like, wow, good effort, Dave, really impressive. I definitely can't do this. I decided it was a smart idea to criticize the route itself, which, you know, it's not the most pure line that you'll ever find. It's slightly eliminate. Um, the line kind of wanders a little bit. But having eventually gone back and climbed it, I can say now that the the climbing is amazing. It's really it's a really fun route, and I was just looking for anything that I could say to take the the heat off of me and not being able to do the, that route. So I decided, you know, the public statement I came out with is I chose not to climb Rhapsody because I didn't enjoy the climb, which was absolute rubbish. Um, and that's something that I'm going to have to live with forever. But anyway, we all make stupid mis- mistakes when we're when we're young and. And foolish and mine just yeah maybe cost me a little so, bit more than so, yes because then because then when you climbed walk of life and you graded at e12 you're essentially saying that it's harder than rhapsody and exactly. any other trad climb in the world exactly yeah so by by giving it the, the never before given grade of e12 you're basically shouting that this is the hardest route in the world and i'm the best trad climber and um at the Honestly, at the time, I thought people would just kind of slap me on the back and tell me, well done. Because that, like I said, up until this point, I hadn't really heard any any of the negative noise. There, was, there surely was at that point. Mm. Um, and when when I announced the route, and uh, I think when it came out, in, in, in it would have been probably in On The Edge, the climbing magazine at the time. You know, there was like a front cover, a massive spread in the, in the magazine. Um and then I started to read the first few things that were being written about it on the internet forums and internet forums were quite young at the time. So there was like a, quite a small, but very um, focused community on UK climbing and, and other places. A lot of people were simply saying, wow, um, what other routes has James climbed to back this up? You know, has he done Rhapsody? Uh, things like that. And I st- slowly then started to get this feeling in the pit of my stomach that maybe something wasn't right and then basically the next couple of months after that were just this this roller coaster is not the right word because roller coasters generally go up and down mine was just like free fall straight <laughs> down towards somewhere i really didn't want to be because um i think i climbed i climbed the walk of life sometime around September, maybe, um, August or September. And then in October, some American climbers, some, you know, slightly well-known American climbers like, you know, Alex Honnold and Kevin Jorgensen came over and decided they wanted to try some grit routes. And um, they did a lot of them really, really fast, which, you know, comes as no surprise. It's Alex Honnold and Kevin Jorgensen. But a lot of the routes that they did really fast were were my routes, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be careful not to go like too far down this rabbit hole because it's obviously only open to interpretation. But I think already at that point there were quite a few people that were uh, quite happy to to see me take a fall, and they were specifically pointed at my routes, being told that they were. Over, already overgraded and were guided on the grades that they were supposed to give these these routes so then alex and kevin 
technically downgraded, for example, the promise without really by their own admission. I'm, I'm really good friends with Alex um, by his own admission. You know, he didn't understand the, what the grit grades were, what E grades represented. He'd just been told by people who will remain nameless um, that these routes are, are, are really undergraded and that's what it should be. Um, anyway. And so, so those routes, my grit routes started to get downgraded and I started to get my first uh, taste of neg- negative publicity. Um, and then in January or February, I forget exactly when, January, I think, Dave McLeod repeated The Walk of Life. And um, and I remember when I read the downgrade that he proposed from E12 to E9, I remember just immediately right then thinking, okay, well, this is this is this is over for me you know it's been it's been a fun run like that's that's it and not just because i didn't see how i would be able to to come back from that in terms of my credibility but mainly because it just showed me that clearly i wasn't the climber i thought i was like the the image of myself that i'd carried for so many years that's kind of been driving me forward just seemed like it crumbled in front of my eyes and i realized then that like something really had gone wrong i didn't know what exactly at that point but clearly you know clearly it, it with some of the things on the grit routes i could i can possibly point a finger at other, at other people and i i still hold my own hands up that i, I definitely you know I, may, I made some mistakes with those routes as well um some like logistical choices with protection and and some of the statements i was trying to make about not using pads um but the walk of life made it really painfully clear that the mistake was more my own than anybody else's. And this was, you know, something that I'd done to myself. So yeah, it wasn't mm. particularly a fun moment. But it is it does reflect a really sad part of the human condition where if there's someone who looks to be on top, if they take a big fall, there always seems to be a lot of people that take a, a really strange amount of enjoyment in that and kind of pile on on the internet forums. It's like, you know, when you see these things come up on your uh, news feed where it's like, remember this Hollywood star? Well, they're destitute now. And, yeah. and there's like an article where you're supposed to read it and go, ha ha, look, like they've yeah. lost everything. And it's like, what are you celebrating there? And it's, it's just, it's sad to see it happening in climbing, but because what's essentially happened is you've given your honest opinion on a grade and you got it wrong. That's not like a great, yeah. it's not a great crime, is it really? Um, but clearly the reaction was tough to take. Yeah, I, we tend to do that, don't we, with people like in, we, you know, we build, we build them up to be something that they can, it's impossible for them to sustain and then take pleasure in watching the fall and the fallout. And we see that in all different, it's not just in sport, it's, you know, in, in music and and art and, and culture, um, and so maybe it's something inherently human. Um, but I think climbing—it's a very small. Ultimately, it's a very small community where we are still pretty much connected to everybody. It'd be pretty rare, I think, to you know, in 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 football, to actually. You might think these things you might talk with your friends about these things you might even write these things maybe in a football forum i presume they exist i've never been to, to look but um uk champs of it sort of really coming back to 
to to, to the real person. It's, it seems like it's a little bit more detached, and somehow it seems like it's maybe a little bit more justifiable. I don't think it's justifiable at any any level, but maybe maybe that's why people, lay people out there, do it for those kind of sports. But climbing always, yeah, it always just seemed a little bit more personal to me, and um, and maybe that's why it hurts so much because a lot of the people that I I either you know read things from or I heard things from always second hand. No one ever said anything to my face, but um, there were people that I considered. I thought they were friends before. And um, and when it when it all happened, yeah, I guess I, I just realised that I was probably a lot more alone than I than I thought. And it was yeah, that was really hard to to deal with. I think I tried to make it happen in the UK for a couple of months to sort of you know pretend it hadn't really happened or it wasn't affecting me and, and just move on with stuff. I actually did some pretty cool climbs when I, when I on-sighted ended the affair. It was just after all of that um, because I kind of just wanted to go out there and, and climb stuff for myself and, and have some fun, do something that felt like it, I don't know, it meant something to me. Maybe the fact that it was also a really dangerous route was probably showed that I wasn't in a particularly safe uh, and secure mental place at the time. But eventually <laughs> I, I couldn't deal with it. Uh, I felt like there were just too many people looking at me and, and judging me and the easiest way was to was to run away and um i'd been really lucky i'd been on a i'd been on a big trip around europe for a, for a month or so um in early 2009 and i basically just it, it kind of reminded me all of the things that i'd i'd enjoyed about climbing before when i when i saw the way that people approach climbing out there and um you know, part of that's just because you're in a new place. You don't really understand the 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 ins and outs of that community, and you only see the the good things. But I just remember feeling like it was such a breath of fresh air, and I wanted to feel that again. So I just mm. I just ran away and, and and left, moved to Innsbruck. Yeah, I did because I did want to um, ask, and I don't necessarily want to focus too much on the darker times. But um, did it also somewhat like spotlight the? Um, importance of like rep- your reputation on your own like egotistical side of climbing where we care about like the um maybe our reputation a lot more but like i feel like that influences inevitably influences us all to a certain degree in the decisions we make but there's also a lot of comfort in like the passion and the enjoyment for just the experience of climbing as well that is a big part of it but like you were saying in that time you went and did a load of other cool climbs that you were doing them for yourself and your own experiences. That's a big part of why we climb as well. And obviously like it's a balance and um, sometimes it like oscillates a little bit for different people. It's different, but um, for it to feel, I feel like all the kickback has like a massive implication on the the reputation side, like side of climbing, but the experience of actually climbing is unchanged like you can go out and do these cool routes i wondered if there was kind of a lot of comfort in that at that time or if it like maybe emphasized the role of ego and how it had like dictated your climbing beforehand because yeah, i feel I, like I, it was quite a transitional time for you then wasn't it yes and and no um i actually listened to some of your guys podcasts over the last couple of couple of weeks um especially about your time in finland and i found it really interesting uh. how you, you know you were you were talking about 
being out there, everyone assumes that you're going to go and work on on Burden of Dreams and everyone's asking, you know, oh, how are you getting on? Have you done it yet? Like almost like it's this thing set in, in stone. <laughs> and um, it was really cool to hear that you'd felt like it was the best thing for you to do, just to take a complete step away from that, go do some other stuff, really enjoy being there, discovering some unique um, types of climbing that, you know, might only get to experience there. And eventually leading back to that boulder and putting some time in and really enjoying it. And I thought that was a really, a really great message to share with people because climbing, it shouldn't feel, it shouldn't feel hard. Ultimately we're doing this because it's fun because we, we enjoy it. And I've, I feel like it's often very, very um, quickly lost, especially when you're either, you know, you're stuck into a, a, a really hard long-term project or especially when you're a professional climber, it's very easy to get things muddled and, and mixed up. And I definitely felt like there was a certain expectation on me to do certain things in the past. And since the walk of life, um, I've really been trying to step away from that. But it's not easy. And as soon as I as soon as I kind of fall into some of my old habits of, you know, really focusing in on a route, it kind of it just all sort of tumbles away from me and I get to the point where I'm not obsessing, but you know, a large part of my mental space is taken up by ideas of what I should be doing out there, what people might think about me. And it all, it's, it's this constant battle with myself to, to really move away from, from that. Um, And it is true that climbing can always be there as something that reminds us that it should just be fun. But at the same time, you can sometimes get so deep into a hole that climbing actually turns into the thing that you that you hate the most. And so whilst there were some moments on the grit just after um, after climbing the walk of life and after all, all this stuff started to happen that were really beautiful and really meaningful, and I feel like I did those routes for the right uh, reason and I had, a, I had an amazing time, when I then left the UK and moved to Innsbruck and started to really try to, I think at that point, the, the key difference is I'd realized why the walk of life had felt so hard to me. I'd understood what I needed to do to make that better, to become a better climber, to become a more complete climber. And I started trying to put that into practice, but because it was something that I'd never done before, um, I had no idea how to actually do it. And my body adapted fairly poorly to it. I think mainly because I was doing the wrong things it felt like the more I was trying to get better at climbing, the worse I was getting at it. So I basically, I stopped trad climbing. I stopped bouldering, which were my two main natural strengths and focused only on sport climbing. But because I didn't really know how to train, the more time I invest in sport climbing, the worse I got at every, everything. And um, I can remember a moment where climbing really became, yeah, just not enjoyable. And that's, that's when I think I really nearly lost myself completely. Um, Cause basically I'm in a new city. Um, I've got a fairly decent sponsorship contract still at this time. Uh, I've got, you know, no real obligations to do anything with my time apart from climbing. And I'm not doing that because I'm not enjoying it. And so I just started investing all that time and energy into other things and some of them were were fun and, and cool and fairly healthy like skiing and mountain biking and others were not so healthy like you know spending a lot of a lot of time traveling around the world 
partying all the time and, and everything that goes with with that. So by sort of mid to late 2010, I was living in Innsbruck. I was still a professional climber. I was in theory trying to find my way back, but I was in my worst physical and mental shape ever. And climbing really felt like it was done for me at that point. Mm. What kind of thing were you trying then? Just like sport routes? Yeah. So I was either, I was either just trying sport routes, you know, throwing myself at them until, until I sort of made progress or just got absolutely burnt out with the process. Um, I was trying some sort of training protocol in the gyms, like trying to follow some of the, um, some of the comp climbers, but they were all like so much better than me. And I was also, I was always so embarrassed how bad I was that I just would always naturally revert back to kind of what I was better at, which was the more physical end of stuff. So I'd always find myself like doing boulder based power endurance exercises in, in the, in the boulder gym rather than getting really stuck into the low end basic endurance, like the, the, the really low intensity, uh, high volume. That's what I needed to do. I didn't, I didn't know that. And what I think really messed me up was that there's so much information out there on, on the internet you know, you can find kind of everything about anything. And, and I'd just get frustrated with one thing not having worked after, you know, one or two weeks of trying it. And then I'd switch to something else and I'd try that. I'd go crazy into that for another couple of weeks and I'd get frustrated. I'd go back to the first thing or I'd find something else and just continuously jumping from one thing to another without giving anything the time to actually, to actually work. And, um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not surprised that happened around about then because that would have been about the time when, like, a huge amount of training content was hitting the internet. Because I imagine before then there wasn't that much around, and then suddenly yeah. everyone's got an opinion, and yeah, there are all, all these, these different things, and... and some of them, some of them sound, you know, so good, and they're being told to you by someone you really yeah. look up to. It's it's really hard not to drink the Kool Aid immediately, but then someone else comes along with some different flavored Kool Aid. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then so what changed it for me is that I was actually um so I was I was away. Um I'd been on this like kind of round the world trip, um financed by the by the North Face because I was eventually making my way to Tasmania to join some of my other fellow athletes on a North Face expedition. And I just made sure that my flight to get there stopped off in sort of like six or seven capital cities along the way with some amazing nightclubs. And, um, taking so yeah, three weeks to get there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got to this place and, um, it was, it was sketchy trad climbing. So I could kind of still to a certain extent, keep up. So it wasn't a complete shambles, but then afterwards I went to join uh, another North Face expedition, which was going on in, in Turkey at the time in this new air sport climbing area that was just being being developed. Um, and it was kind of funny that the the guys at the North Face had managed to pitch an expedition there because Caroline was there on holiday at, at the time. Um, and so yeah, back in back in the day, maybe the expeditions weren't quite sort of as serious, or you could you could let things slip through the gap. Uh, it's not definitely not the case today, but we ended up basically, it was like spring break in Turkey. You know, we had this <laughs> gorgeous villa. Um, everyone was just drinking way too much uh, every night, trying to go sport climbing in the, in the day. And I was so, so bad. 
I think I'd, in my in my head, I knew that I'd climbed 180 plus before in my life. And I was like, well, you know, I'll probably climb that again if I try hard enough. So that was my goal for the trip. I got there on the first day. I was like, what should I warm up on? Okay, 7C plus. That sounds like a good, good warm up. And I went in this 7C plus. And actually, I'm, I'm still really impressed that I did it. I got in there and I think by the second bolt, I was so pumped. But I was so embarrassed because I just assumed that this is the grade that any professional climber should be able to on site. And I just fought like I don't think I've ever fought in my life. And I managed to, to scrape my way up this route, like finding all these weird tricks and, and cheaty beaters. Anyway, I got up the thing and that was the highlight of my trip. That was the hardest route. I climbed all trip. I was most of the time I was falling off uh, Caroline's warm ups because uh, I ended up, Caroline knew some of my friends from the North Face. And so we ended up spending time together and I ended up climbing with, with her most of the trip. And, um, and I remember her like, you know, we'd go to the crack together. She'd, she'd put all the quick draws in, in our respective projects and I'd basically just try and follow her around like this little lap dog. And I loved it so much. I absolutely loved that that week that we spent together there, despite being atrociously bad at, at climbing. <laughs> I do love but, that. For a professional climber. I do love that in the moment when you're like fighting up that 70 yeah. plus, it feels I think like I used be, all my energy on that. It feels like it go. would be less embarrassing to like scream your way up it and like barely do it <laughs> than just to kind of fall off and try again. Do you think like yeah, yeah. this will make me look more professional? <laughs> I can't fall off. But I wonder if like part of a re- I'm sure there's other reasons why you look back so fondly on that time you with when you first met your now wife and <laughs> with two children. So. <laughs> but, but also um also I wonder if a big part of that is almost relaxing into the fact that you don't have to be the best at something as well. It allows you to like enjoy it for what it is a bit more, right? I went sport climbing earlier in the summer or in September on like a load of like pinchy twofers in Spain. And the first route I got on, <laughs> I like followed Seb Berth up this route. Yeah, bad idea. And he and he was like, when he came down, I hadn't even like I hadn't even put my shoes on. He was like, Oh, I feel I feel sorry for you, man. I feel bad for you. And, and, and it was the first time I just climbed with him as well. It was like a 40 meter, like AA on twofers. And like, I've never climbed on twofers. And so yeah. I was just like pinching them like this. Like my thumbs were like, they were the most part, like pumped part of my entire body. I don't really know if I felt like I'd sort of, but like I didn't let go just like really didn't stop trying and like again like i was so boxed for the rest of the like the trip like, i'm I'd... sure you were just climbing like eight eight boulder after eight, eight boulder <laughs> but, <laughs> but like... in reality it's like six six eight <laughs> yeah i was fighting to the living end the point i was kind of making is it was kind of hilarious how like pumped i got and how like and after that, I could not climb. I'd get pumped just like doing a few moves together and, and like linking any moves together, regardless of difficulty. It was kind of, it didn't matter. It was just like six moves and I'd be like, warm straight off. Um, because it was kind of funny. I kind of really relaxed my relationship with like kind of when I go bouldering. Yeah. I feel like I have certain expectations of myself and like yeah. a big part of it will be like, it would be different maybe if like I was climbing by myself or like, if I was climbing with a load of people and this actually was a Patagonia athlete me and I kind of was aware that it didn't really matter whether I was like climbing well or not. Like I didn't have, feel like I had things to prove, but if I was bouldering, I think maybe I'd be more likely have that 
kind of feeling. And I anyway really enjoyed this sport climbing. I found it kind of hilarious. I was like, even like much easier climbs, I'd just be getting really pumped, but it was kind of quite funny. And I kind of really like lent into it and enjoyed it. And I wonder if that going outside of your specialized discipline, whether you kind of, uh, Exactly. You're so far out of your comfort zone that you have no expectations for your own performance anymore. And it, and it allows you to relax. I think that was definitely a part of it. Happens um, only when you really let go of that as well. Like, I think it's completely the opposite when you're attached to your like performance, yeah. even though you're bad at it. <laughs> and then, yeah. then that's really bad. <laughs> and it sounded like maybe you had a bit of that in Innsbruck before that time anyway. Yeah, I think I think there was an element of that. Um, but I think it was mainly just being there with Carol and feeling super, just super at ease around her. And that maybe, maybe that allowed me for the first moment in a long, long, long time to actually just take a breather and be myself without feeling like I needed to, to prove any, anything to anybody. Um, and so basically what, what happened after that is that we, we didn't we didn't plan anything to happen i think i I left turkey um i didn't even know a second name just (laughs) had this super cool time with this with this random french girl and uh we ended up tracking each other down on the internet and chatting a little bit and she wanted to come to innsbruck to train because that's where all the best sport climbers and comp climbers were training at the time so she came and well the the rest is kind of history um but after so after all those early months in Innsbruck where I'd been on my own trying to train, suddenly there was Caro there who potentially could guide me. But she didn't she didn't sort of force it onto me. I think it I think I might have gone for another couple of months without really following what she had to say. Um we'd go training in the gym at the same time, but I had to kind of do my own thing. And it was one particular day, I can really remember I'd been trying this. I'd, I'd kind of naturally just, I think through finding a little bit of motivation for climbing again, I'd kind of got my level up to something similar to how it was in the past. So I was projecting this 8C. It would have been my first ever 8C sport route. And it suited me really well. It was very short, very, very bouldery. Um, and I remember coming back from the crag. Carrie had been training in the gym that day. She might have even been on like a second session or something. And um, I'd fallen off it again. And I came back and I was moaning to her. I was like, God, you know, I'm really sick of it. All this training I'm doing, like it just doesn't, just doesn't work for me. Like I just can't, I can't do it. And this is, I think when I was theorizing that lactic acid didn't really, my body didn't process it quite as well. And I remember the way she looked at me. (laughs) Yeah. She looked at me and she was like, "Uh, I don't want to be nasty, but what you're doing, it doesn't really count as training. You're just going to play with your friends at the crag. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, if you want to train, like, I can help you to train. You can follow me and I'll, and I'll explain you what you need to do. But I need to tell you three like three things. It's going to be, first, it's going to be painful. Second, it's going to be boring. But the third thing is it will work if you give it enough time. And I was like, yeah, yeah, please, please, please like, do it. Do it. And so I started training with Caro. I started following her protocol. Actually, that's not true. I started following about half or one third of what she was doing because if i'd followed her i would have just broke myself um and and within i think within within six months i climbed not only that first 8c but my first 8c plus 
And then a year, I climbed my first 9A. So I went from literally like falling off 7B warm-ups to climbing 9A within about a year and a half, just from doing the right thing and following the right people and, and trusting someone. And I think that's probably the most important thing of all is when you when you work with a trainer, you need to just 100% have faith in them that what they're doing is is going to be the right thing for you. So, you know, whether that's with, it was easy for me with Carol because, you know, it was the, the girl I was in love with, but in a certain way, I'm not in love with Ollie, but like I do have 100% faith in, oh, in him. He'll be devastated, mate. I know, I know. <laughs> you have a special relationship, though. Um, but I do absolutely 100% believe in what he tells me, even if I don't always understand it. Yeah. And that's really cool because it just takes a huge weight off your shoulders. You don't have to guess about these things anymore. You just do what someone says and and it works. Yeah, it's cool. actually I think it is really good. And also in a state of like uh when your body is extremely fatigued, I feel like you're able to like convince yourself of like uh sometimes it's, I don't put faith in my own decision making as well. Yeah. <laughs> like you sometimes you're not always like rational and frowning yeah, yeah. at that time as well. I think it's also good to to also feel like somewhat accountable to somebody as well. Like when mm. I'm getting toward the end of my week and you know I'm already a bit tired and I look at my schedule and the things I've got to do, I'm I'm just like the old James would be like, ah, oh, it's fine, let's just take it easy for the next couple of days. We'll pick it up next week. And now I'm like, oh God, Ollie's gonna read this plan and he's gonna wonder you know why i didn't do this oh, i should really try a little bit harder and it was the same with carol i didn't want to disappoint her so i did everything that she said and i tried really really hard and it and it worked and what that did for me more than you know more than any that was more important than any sport route that i could possibly climb afterwards was that it it reignited this love for trad climbing that i'd lost that i thought i perhaps would never get back and it was simply because with that newfound fitness that I could carry into trad climbing, suddenly I had, you know, the, the, all of the doors were now open. I was no longer restricted to doing these death on a stick, terribly scary trad routes that I, that I had to do before, where when I, before I'd set off, I'd have this kind of like stone in the pit of my stomach. You know, everything just felt wrong. And, you know, I was just dreading what the end result was going to be. Whereas then I can remember specifically my first trip back to trad climbing after about probably three or four years. I don't think I'd placed a, a nut or a, or a cam since the walk of life. And I went back to Pembroke. It's a place I'd always avoided in the past because it was always supposed to be notoriously pumpy for, for trad, like on the pumpy safe side of, 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 of things. I just was like a kid in a candy shop. You know, looking at all, all these routes that I thought were impossible for me to do before suddenly they were there not just to be done but to be flashed or to to be onsighted you know and just yeah i opened my eyes to what was possible for trad for sure but really just how you can completely fall back in love with with the sport again mm. i just wonder how you would have found it had you returned to walk of life and done that again with that fitness it's um it's 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 a really great question and it's something that I've for years I've been planning to go back and um not necessarily do it again, but just out of curiosity just to go and, and see how how it would feel right now. And um maybe next year I'll I'll go and uh I'd I really like to try and do the route on the left of it once upon a time in the southwest. I think mm. that's probably feels a bit similar. 
It would be really fascinating to see what you what you make of it, because obviously at the time, I imagine it must have felt in your position that the sort of triple downgrade was as much of a statement as it was, you know, about you as a person as it was about the route. Yeah. So so it'd be very interesting for you to go back to it now, fit and feel if actually, oh, no, that actually is the right grade for it. Yeah. See what you think. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really interested. Like reading reading between the lines, I get the feeling that those those two routes on that slab they've both been repeated quite a few times now. And uh, the walk of life has been repeated significantly less than than once upon a time in the southwest. Um, and speaking with people that have climbed both the routes, the walk of life seems to be like significantly more difficult than than once upon a time. Tom Randall was telling me that for him. Um, once upon a time in the southwest was a route that he felt like he could go on for fun and just kind of climb it whenever he want, whenever he wanted to, whereas he was still projecting the walk of life at this at this point. Um, but whether or not it is just really 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 hard E nine, or you know whether it's been that classic British um, kind of keep calm, carry on, let's downgrade everything mentality, and, and it is actually more like E ten. Who knows? I, I I can't say until I go back there. But it would be it would be super interesting to be back on that wall again with a completely different approach, like physically and mentally, to climbing that I have now, and to see how it would feel. Yeah, I I'd, enjoy, I'd enjoy it a lot more than I did at the time. That, yeah. That's what I'd really hope. It would be interesting to like return, just psychologically return to a route that's been so influential for you yeah. as well. Um, but I did want to. Um, uh, kind of dig into that like returning to trad a little bit as well because uh, like you said you've come back and climbed Rhapsody you climbed uh, and Gresham's route in the lakes Lexicon and you've done a bunch of stuff I feel, feel like you've repeated you've done a bunch of stuff on Grit as well you've kind of like returned to this community that you felt you had to really like step away from and for you coming back and also how accepting that community has been has it felt quite like a quite a manageable process um i don't know i can see certain hesitancy um, to yeah so i think it's it's always it's really hard for me to be to be truly objective about these things because there's still like a lot of there's still a lot of unresolved issues um within myself i used to think about the uk as kind of my like hypothetical ex lover that just kicked me out one day um made me feel really really bad and whatever i did to try and get them like i desperately wanted them to love me again and whatever i seemed to do it just made them run away even further so i think there was definitely a a moment where i was coming back and and trying to climb these really hard trad routes as a as a way to sort of say but look here i am like this is I might have made some mistakes, but I've I've tried to to correct that, and this is what I can do now. Like you know, when I was really trying to flash these these hard routes at Pembroke, like uh, trying to flash them with Caliente, the first the first hard trad route I tried to flash, then something's burning, and then on sighting quite a lot of V8s. Um, like even going back and trying to do uh, Gresh's lexicon with you know minimal amount of of um, not even pre-practice, just ab down it and looked at the holds. Um, like always trying to sort of 
move trad climbing forwards, like to show the British community that with a lot of sport fitness, you can come and do really amazing things with it. Um, and then eventually I think I just gave up on, on trying to impress people um, because ultimately I can't control what other people think and why, why waste my own time and mental energy worrying about what other people think and worrying about how, how I can try and make people love me again when I can just get on with the things that I really enjoy and, and the things that mean a lot to me. And um, that might sound quite, quite grand. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to take all the credit for having figured that out, out for myself, but I think a lot of it, and I guess Sam, you can probably relate to this. A lot of that just came from being a dad. Like when you, when you bring a kid into this world um, and you have to, you know, live those crazy experiences with your, with your partner and then find a way to survive and make it all work, you pretty quickly realize that you're, you know, you're no longer the center of the world. Like there's a lot of stuff going on around you. And whilst you might stress and worry all the time about what people think and what people feel, ultimately just doesn't really, really matter that much. And having having kids now, it's taken, it's really changed the way that I that I look at climbing um it's it's made climbing way more precious than it was before um simply because we don't have the chance to do it whenever we want and in the same way that we we could do before so before we had the luxury of doing whatever we wanted whenever we wanted in climbing you know we could literally travel anywhere we wanted um try anything that we wanted with no the minimal minimal mental and physical effort we could just you know be on a plane going going somewhere doing something crazy it was, it was amazing but it all seemed somehow a little bit empty and now often we spend a lot of our time stuck and this doesn't i don't want this to sound bad but stuck in your own place in your own home with limited time to even training like even going up on the board which is literally in the top of our house here this is a luxury because we can't do it all the time because there's a lot of things that have to happen in, in any given day. And going on trips, it's amazing. It's such a gift now to be to be somewhere just away from um, the kind of five kilometers uh, square around around your house. And so just climbing has become once again such an exciting thing for me to do because it's now a lot more difficult for me to do. And I want those, the moments that I, climb to be just purely fun and, and purely special and whether or not it's a direct result of that or something that just sort of happened at the same time being able to get rid of all of the shit and all that pressure that you put on yourself to try and perform and and, and do these things that people expect of you that just allows you to really really enjoy climbing for what it is which is just a flipping fun fun mm. cool way to to spend uh, as much so time I as you can devote to it I agree with you, basically everything you've said, 100%. But I'd be also interested to know, with all that stripped back, do you feel like that's helped you to perform? Yes. Because for me, it definitely has. Yeah, that's so cool to hear. I didn't, I've done I didn't know so was... much better yeah. since caring a did, bit less. Did you, have a, did you have a problem with like performance anxiety? before yeah. for I mean, a better word to be honest i still do a bit but like it's much better than it used to be yeah. but 
there is something about knowing that your amount of climbing time is limited that does mean that you just want to enjoy it and you do enjoy it and the fact that you can't have it whenever you want it as you say it makes it more special and and then for some you just out of that kind of feeling of just having a good time and enjoying it and not worrying as much about the outcome i'm not a zen monk still quite quite a lot just not as much but that has that really helps for it to come naturally and not you don't need to force it it's really weird it just seems like it happens without you actually having to try anymore i don't think it's that i think it's more just like a um a culmination of lots of of things like lining up and all you know falling on top of each other but when you i used to be i used to be the biggest condition snob so i think growing up on the grit stone really doesn't help for that because you because the grit is a rock that shows you that if you're there at the right time on the right day you know those those three days a year when things are perfect everything feels really really easy and it used to get to the point where I'd go to the crag and if things didn't feel like they were going to be perfect, I wouldn't even put my boots on. I'd just I'd just go home and I'd save my skin because my skin was all so precious for climbing another day. And I'd end up, well, first and foremost, not climbing or training very much because I was always saving myself for that magical day just around the corner. Um, and the times when it did happen, you know, the times when you get to the crag and like you'd see that frost on the on on the floor or you'd, you'd be driving out uh past Hathersage and all the roads would be like white with salt and so you know like there's no humidity there it's going to be perfect i'd get to the crag and i'd just crumble under that pressure because that was it that was the moment when i had to make it count because that's the moment i've been waiting for and i just couldn't deal with it for some reason i've always been okay at dealing with pressure when when there was something serious or consequential on the line like breaking my legs or, or worse I don't, I don't know why that is but whenever it came down to just like pure performance i was my own worst enemy really i was really really bad at it and i think now i've climbed more hard boulders and, and hard sport routes during a kid's snooze than i think i ever climbed before and i was gonna kids, say uh... kids don't snooze when it's necessarily the best conditions they snooze whenever they get tired so you find yourself climbing whenever they're tired and whenever they're sleeping because that's the only chance you've got to go and so sometimes you know like the sun's on the on the on the crag the wind hasn't picked up yet but oh zozo's down for a nap this is it this is my you know 40 minutes to get this thing done and um when you set off on those things knowing that the conditions are, are, are shitty you don't have any pressure to to do them because who cares and again who cares if you know if a dad falls off this thing because no one expects dads to do anything <laughs> got sleepless nights and little babies and all all these things just took all this weight off of me and i'm not saying that it's easier obviously climbing when the conditions are bad it's clearly harder but that the mental pressure we put on ourselves i think is so much more powerful and consequential than those micro um benefits that we get from climbing in you know with good skin in good conditions yeah, God, if I only, if only I'd known this ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, you can almost be like too. Yeah, being too particular can be quite self detrimental. Yeah, um, completely. But I can um I can definitely vouch for the impressive logistical coordination of um uh you and Caro both having a bouldering <laughs> trip whilst I was climbing with James in Ticino in this spring uh, and. 
both the kids, James and Caro, uh, were living in a van, very well set up to host the whole family. Uh, and climbing days were like uh, impressive feat of logistics. And you'd yeah, always be like training was... in the mornings and <laughs> taking it in turns to have your climbs and <laughs> it's between not, it's nuts not easy. and meals. It's not yeah. easy climbing with kids, but it is totally possible. You just have to go at their rhythm. I think that's the, the most important thing. Like don't force things. And there's like a few little tips and tricks that generally make things a lot easier. And then after all that said and done, you know, regardless of whether you, another thing that, that takes all this pressure off is that regardless of whether you send or not, like little man or, or little lady on chilling on the floor, like they don't care if you've, <laughs> if you've just climbed your really your hardest project ever. Like it does not come into their heads. All they want is that daddy or mummy comes down and and plays with them and shows them that they're loved and cared for and so like it puts it puts everything into into perspective climbing's Mm. great don't get me wrong i absolutely love it but not at the cost of the disappointment or you know the discomfort of the rest of my family yeah yeah Yeah. it's funny though when you were saying that you you always better at dealing with the the pressure or the the um if the stakes is danger, you're better at dealing with that. And it's funny how you kind of end up in a situation where the worst case scenario is you don't do this route, not that you don't break your legs <laughs> or yeah. you break your legs. It's crazy how, how we're able to care that much that we're so willing, you know, or, you know, you were in this instance to put your body on the line for something that's really doesn't mean that much. Yeah. And that's something that I'm, I'm still struggling with actually today um because i do still have you know a fondness for those stupid really really bold gritstone roots and and when i look at it objectively i i I can't justify doing them the only the the only reason i want to do them is because I, i just love the way that it makes me feel um and so a couple of years ago, for example, I climbed this route called Harder Faster on the Grit, which is probably one of the boldest grit routes I've ever I've ever done. Uh, it's a it's a route that I'd I'd tried back in the day when I was climbing a lot of really hard grit routes, and I'd even back then I thought it was too much, was too sketchy. So to come back, you know, fifteen years later with a with a two year old napping at the bottom of the crag and, and to climb this thing, people probably just assume that I'm 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 now crazy, which you know might be the case because sleepless nights definitely make us do funny things but i think the reality is is that i like we already talked about earlier in the in the podcast that you know i developed these systems that really helped me to excel in that style of, of climbing and i still have them to this day that bubble of, of peace and, and and tranquility it still happens to me i'm still stronger when i go on a really bold route um but what's really different nowadays to back then is that i make sure that I'm never, ever, ever, ever going to fall off of it. And that might sound arrogant. You know, you can never 100% control any situation. I could I could slip down my stairs in my house and break my neck and that would, that would be it. But when I climbed harder, faster, literally, there was, there was probably more chance of me slipping down my stairs in the house than there was of me falling off that route because I just, I'd gone so, so deep into that route and everything that I needed to do to make sure that I was absolutely as solid as, as, as you could ever imagine on it. So there was no chance. And that allowed me to to climb it, to justify it to myself um, and to have that experience. But what it cost me 
ironically, was that all those things I was doing to basically keep keep my family unit complete, me not not dying so that they could have a have a dad. <laughs> those like weeks of of effort, um, I was really absent during that whole time, really really distant because I was so focused and obsessed on that on that route, and it's really only hard trad climbing that I put myself in that mental space these days because it's really the only style of climbing that I want to do that has such high consequences. Um, and that I guess is one of the reasons why I really limit myself to just doing one or, or two routes of that, of that style every, every year, just because it costs too much for me to do it in a way that I, I consider to be almost justifiable. Mm. But, you know, the the logical answer is we'll just stop doing it and go, go bouldering more and go go sport climbing more and that's yes uh, that's what I should do and there is no sane reason no sane way to justify like being up down on the top of harder faster on those terrifying slopers apart from the fact that I really like how it feels yeah you know, yeah one of the things that I'm passionate about yeah one of the things I'm realizing as well is that you you can change yourself. You can compromise, you know, you can adapt, but we all kind of are to a certain extent who we are. And it's about finding that balance between doing things that really make make you tick and give you those incredible moments in life and being a responsible, regular human being. And I'm not sure, and maybe this is just another pointless, you know, easy way for me to justify the unjustifiable but I don't know if I'd be the same person and if I could be exactly the same dad and like come to life with so much energy if I didn't have those moments of like madness in in my life. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's interesting, isn't it? As as you said, it's like the you the easy answer we all want to be able to give is that oh, climbing makes us better people. But actually, yeah. it's it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, um, <laughs> so much more. Yeah. <laughs> And I was wondering as well, just um, because it would be good to dig into a bit and I'm sure there'll be, you've obviously spoken a lot in recent times about your experience with Bon Voyage, but that's been like quite a, I mean, as you were saying, you generally only have these few routes um, you focus on. This has been quite a hefty investment of time and energy, hasn't it? Um, uh, And is a pretty special trad route that you did um recently and uh, uh and there's obviously been a lot of like discussion and you've engaged a lot or like there's been pressure to engage with all the discussion around difficulty and things which i really admire actually the fact that you've done it in your own way and in your own time as well um uh, and and actually, since you climbed it, I thought it's been really nice to see how many people, despite not grading it, how many people have been like come to to the area to Anot and tried all those things. And I mean, Ollie's and Maddie have been trying Le Voyage, which yeah. is right next to it as well. And I feel like it's it feels like quite a wholesome. Like a, I mean, I'm sure there's kickback as well, but like it feels like there's been quite a nice reception of. Uh, what does just look like objectively a fun and pretty amazing piece of rock as well. So I was wondering if you could just describe a bit of your experience with that, um, the route and maybe some of the aftermath as well. Yeah. So, um, so Bon Voyage came sort of 
rather surprisingly, um, probably around 2021, maybe. So since since Climbing Rhapsody, um, between I'd say fairly actively between 2014 and 2018, when Arthur was born, I was traveling all around the world looking for this this ultimate trad line that I was hoping to find one day, something that would push me further than all the other routes that I'd, that I'd climbed or, or repeated. Um, I had a, like a fairly strict set of criteria. I think I'd realized that, you know, after the walk of life, if I really wanted to do something that pushed me to my absolute physical limit, it needed to be something that suited me well, um, instead of just something feeling hard because I was underprepared for it. So I kind of had this idea of what the route would look like wherever I went, nothing just quite seemed to fit the bill. Um, and again, it, I think it came down to a bit like when you're, when you're climbing before being a parent and having all the time to do it in the world, it seems somehow less special there when I had all the opportunities to travel around the world, seeing all these amazing lines and all these amazing places, I just became a little bit blase about it. And then when we had kids kind of stopped all that for a couple of reasons, mainly, mainly for the first couple of years, I was just trying to survive. Well, first six months at least it was it was tough and then slowly we've um i guess we we also thought at some point that climbing might be finished for carol and i we were both in in a pretty pretty poor shape uh caroline obviously you know due to having had a couple of kids and i had a couple of um phantom sympathy injuries i think that i got around the same time as her pregnancy so i could <laughs> i could enjoy that moment of life with her um and then once we started to put all those pieces together and figured out how to make climbing work with kids, um, we started training with lattice, which really made a, a big, big, big difference to to both of us. Um, suddenly I found myself in a, in a, in a situation where, you know, not only was I climbing sort of my hardest sport grades ever, which is what I've been doing for the last probably six or seven years. I was also starting to do my hardest boulder problems ever, which was kind of crazy because i'd always been a boulder in the past but then i'd moved away from that when i tried to develop my sport climbing and um and i really feel like during that maybe year or so where i kind of dove deep into 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 the sport that the pack the the best boulders in the world where at one point i was kind of able to play with some of them really just moved on away from me and and i came back to bouldering you know trying to follow the thing that these guys were doing but just generally being a bit out of shape and um and and you know I, i'd lost that that feeling that connection with doing really hard moves it just felt so hard for so many years it wasn't really fun anymore and again this was a time when my i think my my idea of my self-worth was based pretty much solely on what i could climb and so it just wasn't fun going and struggling on these boulder problems, things that I knew I should be able to do, but I couldn't do them anymore. And then when we had kids, bouldering was really the only thing that we could do as a family unit. Um, for the first six months or so, Arthur was, he really needed physical contact with one of us at, at all time. I don't even know exactly what was, was going on with him, but that basically meant that sport climbing and tread climbing and anything with a rope and a harness was completely out. And so the only kind of climb we could do was bouldering and, when you don't really have a choice, you just make things work. And so we we started bouldering again. We were both pretty bad. But then, you know, little by little, 
you fall back into the swing of things and you get slightly better and then you start to in, in, enjoy it again. And eventually we fell back in love with bouldering. And that I think is a great gift. I thought my bouldering days were over because I couldn't, I couldn't perform at a level before having children. I couldn't perform at a level that I thought justified my position as a professional climber. I couldn't waste that time going bouldering and only, only climbing eight a plus when, you know, the, the top level in the world was nine a, it just didn't make sense to me. Um, whereas suddenly when you don't have a choice, you do it, you get better and better and better. And now I'm just so psyched because at 37, I've, I've climbed my hardest boulders ever. And really at the moment, it seems like the only way is up. And so I'm just really, I'm kind of, again, like a little bit of a kid fully in love with this, this, this new, um, this, this new old part of the sport for me. Wow, it's quite nice. It's an encouraging and, sorry, story. Yeah, no, sorry, I complete. I complete. I was like, "What did he ask me for in the first question?" It was about bondage. Yeah. Anyway, so <laughs> no, but that was a nice tangent. That's it was I good feel, though. Yeah, I feel encouraged by that. <laughs> so yeah, maybe Aiden. You know, you can uh, you can have children one one day, and uh, your bouldering level can go even higher. Or maybe you'll just get psyched on on trad climbing, or or like ice climbing, or something completely random and. <laughs> Whatever yeah, you do, yeah. as long as you love it, that, that's great. And so yeah, basically, yeah, because, predict it. <laughs> because, um, because we couldn't travel any um, so much more since we, since we had kids, um, I stopped being so picky about, about my objectives in climbing and started to look at things through a different set of eyes. And we ended up going back to Anot, partly with the hopes of finding something, but mainly because I knew it was going to be an amazing place to, to go with the kids because there's so much fun things for them to do there. And so regardless of whether I'd find anything or not, um, it was going to be a great trip. And then like so often happens when you stop putting all this effort into, into something, things kind of just find a way of appearing and, and right there on a wall that I'd already climbed a new route on several years before was just this, this really amazing line. And, um, and I guess it also took me to look at it in a slightly different way. And I'd always been frustrated in Anot because the lines of pockets don't very, very, very rarely, unless they've been helped by some of the the, the, the French drills, we'll say, never really go from bottom to top. Um, you know, there'll be like an amazing set of pockets and then there'll be a big gap and then another amazing set of pockets. And basically it's because the, you know, it's, it's, it's sandstone, it's a sedimentary rock. So, those pockets tend to form in a certain layer of, of the sediment because it's been, you know, under some different geological conditions. I, I don't know exactly why. So most of the time, the pockets that you find, they don't go vertically, they're horizontally. And so Bon Voyage is basically like this, this rising traverse. And um, once I started looking at things in a different way, suddenly things became a lot, a lot clearer. And um, I was, I was looking at, um, so I, I'd been in Le Voyage, obviously, before. I remember that there was this amazing line of pockets in the middle of that wall. I'd then been abbing down in different places on that same wall, looking for these these um, vertical lines. And at some point, I kind of just had this mental like moment where I realized, oh, there's, there's pockets there. And I think I remember seeing some pockets at a similar height on that wall. And then just kind of looking a little bit further around the corner, I realized that they might all link together. And that's where it came from. And so at first it was uh, there was not really any pressure to to make 
fast progress. I was just enjoying being back at Anot. It's a lovely place with the kids working on this route, doing some other routes. Um, and, and through that time, getting to also spend that with people like Ollie and Maddie, um, and also seeing other people come and, and climb in Le Voyage, which when I climbed it was kind of sandy and a bit a bit chossy, and seeing how amazingly that that route's cleaned up over the year with all this 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 new attention, um, and just generally being super happy to be to be there, and that's something I really tried to hang on to, which is very different from how I would have approached a long project in the past, where I would have been so focused on the the end goal of of climbing the route of ticking that box. Doing that seems like you lose a lot of the pleasure along the way, and don't like you said before, Sam. You know, I'm I'm not a monk either. Like sometimes it, it goes wrong, and sometimes you find yourself obsessing again over, you know, sore skin or what the condition is going to be like next week. When am I going to get a chance to go back and really try this thing? But I feel like I did a pretty good job of every time I did go into that rabbit hole of pulling myself back out and coming back into the present and just enjoying it for what it is. And um, I often struggle on sport routes where after like, you know, five or six red points, I start getting bored. I start getting worried that I'm not going to pass my high point because I've already got there. I've already shown myself I can do that. I should be able to do that every time. And the whole experience becomes well, less enjoyable. Whereas on Bon Voyage, partly I think because I know these things are so rare, I really wanted to cherish and savor every moment in it. Every time I went in the route, I just focused on, how cool the moves were and how nice the holds were and what it was making me me feel. And um, sometimes I went higher, sometimes I fell off lower, but it didn't really matter that much anymore. And the day, the day that I actually did it was like, was the same as so many other days that had come before. There was, there was nothing special. There was nothing magical. It wasn't this incredible moment where everything clicked and flowed. In fact, the time, the actual try when I did Bon Voyage was was probably one of the hardest I had to try. I think I almost fell off the 7A uh, crack right right at the bottom. But it was probably one of the best pieces of climbing I've ever done just because I had to dig so deep and try so hard. And I was like surfing that 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 wave. You know, you're not you're, – you're really balancing. You don't want to go off the back or fall off the front of it. You're riding just along between – failure and success and not really even knowing if, if you're there until I'm, I'm sat on the top of the thing thinking hang on I just I just did this that's crazy yeah I always think it's a really good sign as well when the attempt when you do something or like the day you do something doesn't feel any different to any other day it's not a magical moment it's always encouraging to know that you are doing the process that like you're going through yeah. that process because you're passionate about it because and it's not just the bells and whistles at the finish line yeah, it's yeah. It was, day and you enjoy each day and it's almost it was like really comforting for me to know as well that um there wasn't just this magical moment where things clicked that start it starts you second guessing have i been doing things wrong all this time like actually having to really really fight to make it make it work showed me that okay it is it is pretty hard and i've been giving it you know i've been giving it a really good go all of these months for a good reason and um and that was that was pretty cool as well often when you finish something and it and it 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 all seems a little bit easy and you kind of float up it you find yourself asking yourself oh you know was it really that hard yeah yeah have i been doing something wrong all this yeah. time <laughs> mm. yeah yeah it's sorry we just say something 
No, no, um, I was just going to say, because since then, it's been like a few people have come and tried it as well, right? Um, yeah. Are there times yeah. when you've been there as well? Or like, um... Yeah, every pretty much every every time someone's been in it, um, I've, I've tried to be there. So when I, when I did the route, I, actually for a couple of weeks after doing it, I didn't tell anybody because I just wanted some time to process that for myself and, and try and understand what I'm actually thought about it. Um, because I guess deep down, I had the I had this gut feeling that it was going towards a certain number, a certain grade, a certain number that for me carries really a lot of weight with it, and the idea of of going there again and putting that number out there into the climbing world really terrified me. Um, but at the same time, I was because it was a very, very specific climbing style with a sort of a specific hole type. Um, and I'd had to train specifically for it. I really, I really wasn't sure also because I'd not shared the experience yet with anybody else. I wasn't sure whether I'd had to train a weakness to become just an average strength or whether I'd had to train a grip type of mine that was already pretty strong into something that was, that was, you know, potentially world-class, um, and kind of that was the base of, of of all the problems because you know the answer to that question changes everything toward to do with the grade and even though I could take my I had I had my gut feeling of the whole route based on you know the similar time it taking me to climb to climb other other routes um, I could put those bolder grades of each individual section that I have more experience on than, than just grading grading routes into something like uh, Darth Grader for example. And that would constantly give me the same the same number out. Um, but if my interpretation of those boulder problems was wrong, then obviously that was going to skew everything up. And I know that my gut feeling on roots can also be wrong from past experience. So that could could mess things up. And so even though everything that I felt like I understood about the route was pointing me towards one thing, I just didn't trust myself to to go there. And main more than that, when I thought about when I thought about actually giving it that grade, um, God, I went really like really really deep um, into into this sort of I don't know over psychoanalyzing things and imagining all the horrible things that people might might say again, and you know, kind of imagining even these these internet memes about lightning striking twice and just just totally ridiculous totally out of of the the realms of what i should realistically have been thinking about and worrying about them but i think it just shows how still i'm i'm really not able to to properly process all of, all of this because of what happened with the walk of life I mean, so what i wanted like to do ptsd thing almost isn't it it's sort of it's just that past yeah, trauma yeah. it's and it's because it's so similar it would feel like deja vu. It's basically yeah, the same exactly thing again. What, um, what uh, I was I was climbing with Hazel Finley actually a couple of um, maybe maybe a week or two after I did it, and uh, we were climbing at Seine, which is like a sport a sport cliff near, near, near our house in the south of France. And I think maybe on that day or maybe the day before or something, I just climbed a nine a, a 9A on that on that cliff, which is similar sort of breakdown to the style of Bon Voyage. And I'd wanted to see how long it would take me to climb a sport route like that, just to see where my fitness roughly was 
and and I'd done that route in like four days or something. Um, so I knew I was in a really really good place. And Hazel and Angus, they were they were there, and I think they'd seen me climbing, and we were talking about it, and they were like, "Well, why, you know, why don't you just grade it? Like, what's the problem?" And I told her all of these things, and that's exactly what she said to me. That from her point of view, you know, it was showing signs of somebody with PTSD, which was, yeah. I mean, when she said that, like, honestly, I didn't know whether to laugh or cry because <laughs> it's on one hand, it sounds kind of funny and, and ridiculous, but on the other hand, I know how how much all that hurt me in the past and how hard it was to to deal with it all and how it still it still really scares me. And so I didn't want to grade it, um, or at least I didn't want to grade it on my own. And so what I what I did, what I proposed to the climbing community was that other people come along and try it and I would go there with them and I would give them all of my all my beta and methods and really try and make it as easy a um possibility for them to repeat the route as quick as they, they could. So that potentially I'd have some 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 feedback on it, and you know some other people's opinions. And so so far, there've been quite a lot of really strong strong trad climbers have come to try it. Um, no one's done it yet. I think the the route itself, because it's based on pockets and quite small pockets, it, it can be quite morpho. So finger size and finger strength plays a big part in it. Like for me, there's a crux move that it revolves around a, a pinky mono. Um, Seb Berth actually came to to try it, uh, and he's probably the 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 person that's the closest I think to repeating it. He's just not had the chance to come back because of weather and commitments. I'm sure that he can he can do it. Um, so far, like he told me that from his his opinion at, at the minute lines up with what I was feeling about the route, which is pretty good. Um, Ignacio Malero is a super strong Spanish. Uh, climber he's climbed loads of hard sport routes up to 9a plus and really hard boulder problems and loads of hard trad routes he spent a month there he couldn't really manage the crux very well steve just had a look at it jacopo larka was uh was there last 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 three weeks um he also made pretty good progress in it but really struggled with the crux a lot and then had some skin issues so he hasn't properly tried it yet again i'm sure he can do it if he if he gets lucky and puts in the time but it does seem like it's not you know it's it's not dave mcleod coming down with a with a busted finger and climbing it after after two days it's i i think i think i've i think i know enough about myself now to realize that you know, when when I graded the Walk of Life E12, I a I had no idea about that style of climbing, and I had no idea what even E12 represented. It was just a number that I was throwing out there. And now with Bon Voyage, I think I really understand what E12 means. I think I understand how hard it would need to be as a sport route, how dangerous it would need to be at those in those grade um, brackets. And I, and I think it's there. Mm. Maybe, you know, maybe someone comes along that has really small fingers and is super strong on pockets and finds it a bit easier. And that's that's okay because that's that's climbing. We're all different, you know, we're not these little robots that are gonna have the same unique the same experience as, as everybody else. Everybody's bringing their unique skill set and, and body type to the table and their experience is gonna change depending on depending on that and the conditions they find and what mental place they're in so somebody for sure could come along and find bon voyage easier than i felt it was just like somebody else can come along and find it harder than i felt it was and that's 
kind of what's cool about climbing is that it's always going to be slightly different. And I feel like a lot of the time we spend a bit too much time and energy obsessing and arguing over these micro details, you know, is, Mm. is something 8C plus or 9A or 9A plus. Honestly, for me on any given day, one route could get all of these grades. Mm. It's, it's also just so interesting because like you consider yourself predominantly you know, a trad climber is your, is your like number one specialty. And yet the James that climbed and graded E12 last time, you think about how many grades you've gone up in bouldering and sport climbing <laughs> all to try and get one grade in your predominant specialty. It's interesting how trad grades seem to have driven to a bit of a halt when everything else is carried to move on. Because, I mean, E11 happened 20 odd years ago. Yeah, 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 just under 20. Um yeah, I mean, this is a subject for another podcast. We can we can do an e grader podcast. We can bring bring an e grader <laughs> team. That, on that probably felt a little bit because there was a certain yeah. amount of kickback from that, wasn't there, from e grader? Yeah, again, and it and it just it just reinforced how everybody sees the world through through you know different lens. And in doing e grader, what I thought we would we were doing is basically taking my and some of the other guys experience of climbing a really hard trad routes but also climbing lots of really hard sport routes all around the world and bringing that back towards the uk and offering a little bit of um objectivity to what is a fairly subjective um realm and I genuinely feel by splitting the emotional element of the E-grade, which is sort of the danger element of of it and your relation to that, because obviously different people are going to be, just like we all have physical strengths and weaknesses, we all have mental strengths and weaknesses as well. And so different people deal with with danger in a very, very different, different way. And I feel like it's very easy to, or at least it was for me in the past, to cloud my judgment in regards of the physical difficulty of a route when I get really scared. So when I did the walk of life, I was absolutely terrified on it. And I couldn't see a scenario where this wasn't the hardest trad route that I'd ever done because of how it made me feel. And that that feeling of pure terror just overshadowed everything else. And I think looking thinking back to it, there were times when I when I warmed up on that slab in like a baggy pair of boots and I link and I could climb it on top rope. But then when I got on it on the lead, it, it felt, you know, like a completely different animal altogether. And I just couldn't take a step back at the time and be like, well, this, you know, clearly is not that physically that hard because I can do it on a, on a top rope. It just must be really, really scary for me. But I just was like the overall experience just took over everything. And so E-Grader splits that up into things that we can hopefully remain a little bit more objective about and and it's great so it's never going to be perfectly objective but i felt like it was doing a, a slightly not a better job but a helpful job and people could take it or leave it and they were free to carry on with their own grading analogy um or or technique that they've always used or they could look at e-grader and maybe that would point them in a in a slightly different direction or, or help them some way 
what I didn't expect is that people felt like we were, and there was all sorts of funny, funny, crazy stuff shouted then, like about. But it's almost, it's almost like a tool that people can choose to use or not, right? Yeah, which is, I mean, like our lives is our lives are full of tools that we can choose to use or, or not. And I just thought E-grade might end up helping a lot of people. It really helps foreigners, um, non-UK-based trad climbers to understand the E-grade. And that's and that's great. And that's for me, that's enough. That people like Jacopo. Um and 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 to be, you know, like called a colonialist, uh, that we're we're trying to um like take over the 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 world of, of British trad climbing with shady business techniques of global domination. I mean that also links in with lattice. Like I never I never knew that lattice was sort of often so looked down upon by a lot of people. There's there's a lot of hatred for the things that Ollie and Tom are doing out there. And I I never knew that. And to me it's amazing what they're what they're doing. Like they're bringing a level of knowledge and a level of organization to a sport that, you know, it just didn't have it before. But then from through E-Grader, the things that people were saying, especially related to Tom, it was like, wow. And yes. I guess part of that made me feel a little bit better, which is horrible to say, because suddenly I realized, okay, it's not just me. Like there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. people out there that get <laughs> needless, like mindless hate for no reason. And that's kind of just the world that we live in. I mean, there are there are some people that see climbing as more of a kind of spiritual pursuit, uh, and, and that's think, amazing. And I think some of those people do operate around the E grade thing, and I think they just like it's almost looked down upon that some people train or yeah. try things on yeah. a top rope or you know take a 3d mold of a of a hole to train on. You know, that's like a way of they think it's like removing the magic from it. And all I would really say to those people is that everyone, you're, the magic that you feel is subjective to you. It doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else sees climbing that way. So it's like everyone in climbing needs to get a little bit better at trying to see climbing how other people see it rather than just themselves. And angry, angry online commentators, uh, you know, they, they're only seeing it through their viewpoint. And it's not wrong. It's just different. Yeah. And even if you can't, <laughs> even if you can't, take that step back and and accept that other people have a different opinion to you and a different way of looking at things. Just enjoy the fact that you can enjoy your own, this, this magical approach that you have, like the things that I'm doing don't take away from, from exactly. what you're doing. Like it's, it's, it's great. There's room for everybody out there to, to approach these things in, in however they feel is best for them. I think we should all just hold hands and, and give each other a big hug basically. <laughs> It's a, it's a nice sentiment. Um, <laughs> look, um, guys, I'm, I might have to, um, my fam, I'm really You've sorry to cut it sh- short, but my family are waiting for me for dinner. So, uh, oh, I, I, I probably There's more important things in a podcast. <laughs> I probably ought to stick on, stick, stick on here too long, but, um, I thought it was a nicer, uh, nice little sentiment to finish on there. Yeah, um, yeah it's funny how often we've been finishing off that sentiment as well recently. Maybe we should all be a little story. bit kinder, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think particularly with James's story, it works so well because it's yeah. like the exact perfect example of how this stuff can have a serious impact. And affect someone quite profoundly, yeah. yeah. And I do, think, I do think that we are all getting better. Like when you, when you look back at 
what the world was like 15 years ago, just in, just in like the things that were on TV and, you know, the, the things that we were, we thought were okay to do to people. We're in a very, very different place now in, in 2023. So things are going in the right direction. I just hope that they keep on going there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Look at, at like 2000s British programming. It's absolutely appalling. Yeah. <laughs> that stuff was on, on TV now. No. Anyway, but, thank you so no, much, yeah. guys. Thanks so much for coming, James. That was amazing. Such a good yeah. story. Thank you, James. Really, really nice pleasure. to catch up. And uh, hopefully, yeah, we can uh, meet up and go, in the real go and life. Enjoy, yeah. Go and enjoy your dinner. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. And uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great to speak to you. Send my best to the family as well. Will do. Will do for sure. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> All Ciao. the best, James. Ciao. Thanks, James. Thanks so much, man. Ciao, you.